there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. I'm looking forward to an informative conversation with today's guest, Lisa Gable. Lisa is the CEO of FAIR, Food Allergy Research and Education, the world's largest funder of food allergy research. Prior to leading FAIR, Lisa Gable was a senior advisor at PepsiCo and president of the Healthy Weight Commitment Foundation, where she worked on cross-sector solutions to improve intractable public health issues. From 1994 to 2009, she was a founding principal of the Brand Group, an advisory firm dedicated to helping companies such as Apple, Gap, Intel, Oracle, and others implement change strategies. Earlier in her career, she served four U.S. presidents, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, including as U.S. ambassador and first female commissioner general of the World Expo. In addition to all those accomplishments, Lisa Gable is the proud mom to a Montessori teacher and lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, who is a high-tech entrepreneur. Lisa Gable, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Well, it's so wonderful to be with you today. And before we start, uh, I noticed when we had the introduction music, uh, you gave a little uh, a dance, the jig there. And we had a few guests on a few weeks ago uh, who I think have started that trend. And so I appreciate that. And uh, I forgot the warning in advance, but, uh, but thanks for stepping in there. Always. No problem. <laughs> so Lisa, there's so much to talk about, but I'm sure that many people are interested in your current role because food allergies affect them or someone near and dear to them. Would you share an overview of the current state of food allergies, how many people are affected by food allergies, and do more people have food allergies today than ever before, or are we just more aware of the issue? Well, I really appreciate your asking. There are 85 million Americans and half a billion people worldwide who avoid the same top nine proteins that can trigger an allergic reaction. 32 million of those Americans will actually suffer what's called anaphylaxis, which means that uh, it could lead to death. And so they need to take epinephrine right away and uh, call 911 and go to the emergency room. To answer your question about is this a more recent occurrence, there have been people with food allergies in the past, but we've seen an acceleration of food allergies since 1998. And so what you really saw is in 1998, the numbers started taking off, uh, particularly with children. There was a huge rise in children who are now, you know, early in their young adulthood. Um, But what we're seeing today is actually adults who've eaten a food their entire life, and all of a sudden they're suffering from anaphylaxis due to that food. And that's pretty frightening. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I've got two daughters that both have pretty severe nut allergies. And um, obviously, like I said, it's scary. They go to anaphylactic shock. Uh, they can't breathe. You have to go to the hospital. And so we carry the EpiPen around with us. And it's amazing. You literally have to read the ingredients on everything that you buy, everything that you eat. Um, and so I'm glad that we've got this you know, awareness coming out there. And to that point, has our food changed in ways that are causing more allergies or have we changed or are there other forces at work? You know, they're still trying to understand why we're seeing the rise. One of the things that we know is that in 1998, the doctors changed recommendations. And what they recommended is that people, uh, that women who are pregnant uh, not eat the allergens. And actually, there was a a recommendation to not feed the allergens to your children until a certain age. And that was exactly 
the wrong information. Uh, so FAIR funded something called the LEAP study uh, around peanut. And what it showed is that if you fed peanut to children with eczema uh, between four and six months old, early and often for the first two years of life, that you would see a precipitous drop in the number of children developing peanut allergy. And so once that, that's been five years, and once we've started entering in that recommendation into the market, basically pediatricians talking to moms about feeding peanut to their children, we have seen a huge drop in the number of children developing peanut allergies. FAIR is currently funding a study that will be fully announced next month that is going to be feeding 2,000 babies eight allergens. And what we hope to show after that study is, uh, we our hypothesis is, but we'll see if it proves true, is that feeding all the allergens to the baby would actually help reduce the risk. So that's one of the things that happened. The second thing that happened in the late 90s is we became really, really clean. All of a sudden, people were were using a lot of cleaning products like Purell. You had a lot of Clorox in use. You had people living in urban areas. And so what we know is that really, as it's related to the prevention aspect of early introduction of the allergen to the baby, or if it's related to our cleanliness, our immune systems exist for a reason. They are there to train our bodies. And so you have to train the immune system. That's why when you go to foreign countries that they'll make you take different shots and things. It's why that you may be more susceptible. And so it's actually okay for children to play in the dirt and to get dirty and to stick stuff in their mouth. It helps the immune system overall. So those are two of the primary reasons. There's another issue, which I am not going to attempt to talk about, called the leaky gut. And that one I leave to my scientist. Actually, my research science and innovation officer or Dr. Bruce Roberts is a specialist in gut microbiome. But we do know there's a lot going on with the gut. And for some reason, uh, there's a mystery as to why this is causing more people to develop food allergies, particularly later in life. And so you see research in areas like probiotics and other things that would actually change gut health. And we hope that makes a difference. You mentioned in the 90s how it became a cleaner society. Um, what are your thoughts on you know, the world of COVID, you know, Purell is attached to your hip now like a, a gun in a holster and we've got masks on. Is that going to be another wave of this or do you think it's just a temporary phase for lack of a better word? You know, and again, I am not a scientist, so I cannot speak on behalf of my doctors, but personally, I have been very concerned about that. My daughter is a preschool teacher and she said that every time her children walk into the classroom, the first thing they do is they hold out their hands for yep. Purell. And I'm not saying anything against poor Purell because I use it a lot, especially when I travel internationally. Uh, but what I am saying is that we are already, and I, again, using, using my daughter's experience as a preschool teacher, that we're already seeing kids getting uh, you know, more virulent forms of different types of flu right now and other types of things that are making them sick because we've had them masked up, because we've had them using a lot of cleaning products, because we're washing their hands. And so the question that I have for my doctors is, what? What unintended consequences are we going to experience as it relates to actions that we're taking to keep us safe uh, from COVID? And I recognize that COVID can be a deadly disease. And, you know, there, there's that fine balance there that every time we take certain actions, other things result that we may not have intended to result. And for the record, Purell is not a sponsor of our show, but maybe we should reach out and, and talk to them for the advertisement. So to that point, Lisa, are there policies that we need to change or demands we need to make on retailers or food processors that can reduce food allergies that people are experiencing? 
Well, what we can do is we can demand changes to things that would make it easier in life for people to manage their food allergies. And so you have children with with peanut allergy, nut allergies, uh, and labeling is one of the primary issues that I've tackled since I came on board to FAIR. As you noted, part of my business experience is branding. And when I walked into FAIR and I saw someone handed me a printout that showed their 40 different types of what we call precautionary allergen labels in market, I just started twitching uh, because I knew how, cons- you know, how utterly confusing that is for the consumer. And what someone has also uh, done some research on is there may be up to 35,000 different ways that we are declaring allergens on digital uh, labeling. And so when you are looking at different labels, scanning devices, uh, looking at packages, going online and doing your shopping. And so one of the things that we are uh, focused on at FAIR is trying to standardize precautionary allergen labeling. We've done extensive research with McKinsey. It's one reason that we know there are 85 million Americans avoiding buying the same top nine proteins that can trigger food uh, allergy reaction or an intolerance. Uh, But the goal is to make it very clear to the consumer. So one of the things that FAIR is very proud of is the passage of the FASTER Act. In the FASTER Act, added sesame as the ninth allergen. There are eight declared allergens by the FDA. We got the president actually signed it into law that sesame will be the ninth allergen. And the reason why that's important is we were seeing a rise over 1.6 million people who were going into anaphylaxis through the accidental consumption of sesame. And so sesame is that hidden ingredient. It shows up in spice mixes. People may not realize it's in tahini or in hummus. We eat a lot of Mediterranean diets right now. And so having sesame on the label uh, was very, very important to us. And so I would say from a policy perspective, that's one of the most important things we focus on. How can someone learn more about FAIR or connect with your organization? They can go to foodallergy.org. Foodallergy.org, that's our website. Secondarily, is you can go onto Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, even TikTok. We now have a TikTok channel and YouTube. As YouTube, it's the Living Teal channel. And if you go onto that channel, you can learn all about the science, but you'll also see uh, famous chefs creating a lot of different variety of foods. And there will be some wonderful recipes because we know that avoidance diets can be a little boring sometimes. And so we want to also make your life joyful. It's amazing. You mentioned TikTok. That wasn't even a thing a year and a half ago. And now it's you know mandatory in our social media platforms. And so it's just amazing how the world's evolving. Yes, it is. And I still haven't figured it out. So I call my daughter and I'm like, can you load this one minute sizzle reel for me? Because I can't figure it out. <laughs> you and me both. And I just learned sizzle reel last week. So you're a few steps ahead of me. So Lisa, you've had so many important leadership roles throughout your career in government and the private sector. Throughout that time, you've been very committed to empowering women, both in our country and globally. Let's start with a topic on everyone's mind right now. What happens to those women of Afghanistan now the Taliban is back in control of that country? And is there anything we can or should do at this point to help them? Well, you know, I've had a number of friends, very close friends, who've probably been some of the most active people in the United States working for the past 20 years with women in Afghanistan. And what we know based on some information posted by Laura Bush's foundation is that there are a thousand female entrepreneurs in Afghanistan. They've created $77 million worth of wealth that they contribute to the economy. That has all pretty much started during the last 20 years, in large part due to the work by Mrs. Bush, uh, her former chief of staff, Anita McBride, a woman by the name of Terry Neese. There's so many women who've been heavily involved in bringing these women to the United States and training them through uh, four-week programs, in Terry's case, uh, with major, uh, uh, you know, with academic institutions, they get those executive degrees. 
And, uh, and there's a program called Arzu, which really started very early on helping women who may, due to uh, uh, their own religious beliefs, uh, weren't comfortable leaving the home or their husbands weren't comfortable, is teaching them how to create a cottage industry of making rugs in their homes and then being able to sell those. And so I think the, the big question that many of us have is what happens to those women uh, now that the Taliban is in control? And, you know, I just say, thank uh, goodness uh, for our soldiers, our wonderful Marines and Air Force who've been there over the last few weeks and departed yesterday. Uh, we so appreciate their service because we do know that uh, they have been able to bring many families out. And I know that my dear friends have been involved with that process. So I don't, I like everyone else, I don't have an answer to that question. But what I can tell you is that these women that we're hearing from uh, believe that uh, they want their daughters to be educated. Uh, some of them are uh, young women who are the same age my daughter, 23, 24 years old, you know, they, they've been educated. They went to school. They were in medical school and graduate school. And so those women are one group that we can't uh, let be left behind and that I think will be a force, a positive force uh, for any changes that might take place in the country. But we're also all worried for their safety. When and how did you get involved in empowering women in Afghanistan? Well, I have been involved in a lot of different organizations. I'm on the board of what's called the International Republican Institute, which works with our counterpart called the National Democratic Institute. Uh, and so many of these organizations, like the program that uh, Terry Neese has been involved with and that she started called the Institute for Economic Empowerment of Women, I've had the opportunity to be a trainer and a teacher at different, uh, different venues for the last 20 years. And so through the programs and the people that I mentioned, uh, because I have actually done women's empowerment training, leadership training, mentorship through different organizations over the past 20 years, I did have the opportunity to meet and teach a number of women from Afghanistan. I've also met in, uh, with women from Morocco and a lot of other countries, uh, but it is where I had my opportunity to support my friends uh, by providing my time and service as uh, someone who would do some of the trainings that they were uh, engaged with. And what were some of the challenges that you experienced, that those women experienced, and what were some of the successes that most heartened you? Well, the challenges are, you know, that level of independence, whether we see in, in any country that has a, a very strict a cultural set of rules, particularly about women uh, in the way that they dress and their ability to work outside the home um, and their ability to inherit. So not only Afghanistan, but one of the groups of women I've worked a lot with are in Latin America. And, you know, something like 80% of the young women and girls are the ones who work in the fields every single day. But they can't inherit the land that they till. And so in Afghanistan, where you have such a, a restriction related to women being able to work outside the home, related to women being able to be educated, uh, I, you know, I, one of my favorite stories is I had a chance to go to Morocco and work with a group of women who were the first group of women we were helping to train run for office. And my portion of the conversation is helping them develop economic development programs. And we had conversations about how you bring business in, how you create partnerships in business. The women in Afghanistan have created partners in the United States and Europe for the sales of their products. And you have this very extensive, especially with the internet, uh, movement of product developed by women um, around the world. And so for anyone, it's, it's having access to capital, no matter what country you're in, having the right to inherit, 
and having the right to make decisions. I think one thing that people forget is that Ronald Reagan is the person who signed into law in the mid-80s the right of American women to take out a loan without having to have their husband's co-sign. And so one reason you saw the rise, the incredible rise of small businesses in the United States, particularly owned and managed by women, is because Ronald Reagan changed that rule. And it's so hard for me to even think about the fact that I wouldn't have been able to take out a business loan or a house loan without my husband signing it. We've come a long ways in the last 40 years. One of the roles that you served was as the vice chair of the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services during the Clinton administration in the wake of the Tahoe scandal. What was that scandal all about and did it change the military at all? Well, the, it was probably the largest uh, sexual harassment scandal in the military. And I was uh, appointed by George H.W. Bush and, uh, at midnight to hear about these midnight appointments. I got to be a midnight appointment, and which meant that I was sworn in by Les Aspen, who was Secretary of Defense uh, under Bill Clinton. And so our committee was divided between both Democrats and Republicans. And, and it was right after Tailhook. And so one of the things we did is we, we went around to military installations. I went to 52 military installations. And, uh, and what it caused us to do is have focus groups to really understand from the women if sexual harassment was a major issue throughout the military or if what happened at Tailhook was a unique situation. And we heard a lot of different things. I've been involved in a secondary military scandal. And, and sometimes what I can say is it is highly isolated to certain locations. I would not say that it is a pervasive part of the military. Um, in fact, one of the things that we heard from uh, women who were master sergeants and chief petty officers, sort of that mid-rank or that top rank of woman who's worked her way up through, uh, through the service, is it bothers them when these things happen because they've worked so hard to get to where they are. And all of a sudden it becomes the focus of the conversation. And so what we did is we actually brought in the Baldridge Ward uh, facilitators and we had them help us craft a questionnaire so we could get to the underlying causes of problems the women were facing. And we went, as I said, all over the world, we were in Asia and Europe uh, and the United States doing these focus groups. I was personally talking to a thousand women and what we discovered is that the women were actually more concerned about back-to-back deployments because you had Kosovo going on at that time, uh, access to the tools and resources they needed to fix things like the airplanes, uh, housing issues, and education issues. So they weren't sexual harassment when we actually went around the globe and met with all of these military personnel. It actually fell to the lowest end of the things that they were most concerned about. So I would always caution whenever a, um, a situation happens that you recognize that this is a huge institution with thousands of people who are employed. Bad things can happen due to bad behavior, but it's not necessarily indicative of the entire institution. That was quite a few years ago. Where do things stand for women in service today? Would you encourage young women to pursue a military career? Why or why not? Well, I, I always, you know, I always encourage women to to serve their country in any way that they can. And should the military be the winner in which they want to do that service, we honor that. We're at a very difficult time today because we have just seen um, the Marines who were killed and the picture that is probably the most pervasive online is a woman who's the same age as my daughter holding a baby. And I have to admit, when I saw that picture, I just I just started crying. My, my cousin is a 23-year-old Marine. He has not been deployed yet, but it really hits home when you're 
my age and you have children uh, that are the that are the same age as young adults who who have died in service of their country and so we have to honor that and and you know when you look back at her instagram post of talking about how proud she was and how much she loved her job and watching her walk those families to freedom that's what she was doing she was walking them to freedom uh, she was proud of that, and she probably helped save thousands of children over the last number of weeks. Uh, you know, I have a number of friends like Martha McSally and others who were part of that first group that became um, pilots, both in the Air Force and in the Navy. And so we have a place where, you know, in our gener- in my my generation, I'm in my late fifties. It was unusual for women to be able to serve in in other types of forces. But I have a number of friends who are who are admirals, retired admirals, retired generals. The military has been a wonderful opportunity for so many young women. And I'm just incredibly proud of the service that our military personnel do. And I want to support them in any way I can. We saw a record number of women run for Congress and the Senate last year, and a record 127 elected to federal office. You're a senior advisor to Winning for Women, which supports female candidates who advocate for free market principles. Why is that issue important, not just to you, but to our political system? And how does Winning for Women get women elected? Well, they get women elected by getting other women to support them. And, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me because I've had bipartisan positions and I've had partisan positions. Winning for Women is a, a partisan effort. Um, but I've also had friends who've been very, very involved and on the board of EMILY's List. And the reality is we, we've helped each other be successful. Uh, women provide a different perspective. Uh, you know, sometimes a good perspective, sometimes not always a good perspective. Uh, but they do provide a different perspective. I think they look at life differently. And even let's talk about food allergies. One of the things I remind people when we go up on Capitol Hill and we're talking to a different female elected officials is it's the mom normally that's checking the backpack and checking the suitcase and making sure that, you know, do we know where the EpiPen is? And so I can sit here today and tell you what six-year-olds in my daughter's class, you know, 17 years ago had food allergies uh, because it is the mom. And so there are certain aspects of, of working with the teachers and working with the school systems that moms may know better than, than the dads may know. Not that we don't have a lot of involved fathers, but you need a balanced government. You need a government uh, that is, is diverse, uh, both socioeconomically, as well as from a race perspective and also from a gender perspective. And so you'll You'll see a bonding of, of women um, on both sides of the party over issues like what we just talked about. I also had a number of friends who were involved with something called Vital Voices, which was you know started by Hillary Clinton's people. There's a crossover point where women are working together. And it's been really interesting for me during, the, during what's going on in Afghanistan to see uh, female reporters from CNN, from the Washington Post, from Fox News, all saying exactly the same thing, uh, as well as, uh, you know, women, uh, there are some Democratic women who uh, served in the CIA, served in the military. There are Republican women who've served in the armed forces. Everybody brings a different point of view. And for us to solve the complex problems we have to solve today, we need those different points of view. Well, you mentioned women have a different perspective or different points of view. What do women bring to the political and governing process that men don't? And remember, we've only got about 35 minutes of the show left, so I'm not sure if there's enough time for you for that one. You know, it just depends. 
depends on the person. It doesn't matter. I mean, some women are really, really nice and some women aren't very nice. Some men are nice and some men aren't nice. I've, you know, you, I know later we're going to be talking about mentoring. I've had a lot of male mentors and I've had a lot of female mentors. So I, I think it's the way in which we socialize, the way in which we gather together may differ, the way in which we talk to each other. Um, but I, you know, I've been involved in politics my entire life. I've seen people from all walks of life. And I think it's personality-based as opposed to gender-based. As I mentioned a moment ago, a record number of women were elected to Congress for the first time last year. Yeah. Incumbents are most vulnerable in their first re-election campaigns because they have a big target on their backs and they're typically still not well-known to constituents. As you look forward to the 2022 elections, are you concerned the number of those new women in Congress will be defeated and will take a step back? Or are you more optimistic that we'll continue to see move towards greater parity? You know, we had a big hit on on the loss of women on the Republican side a number of years ago, and we've regained that lost ground. I think the critical thing is you have to support people. If you believe that it's really important to have women in in government and in elected positions, then the party needs to step forward and support the women. Um, If you believe that it's important to have diverse populations and diverse representatives in government, then the parties need to step forward and support diversity. Uh, it's, it's It's a matter of strategy. It's a matter of investment. It's, it's important to make the investment, and we shouldn't leave people stranded on their own. We need to support them. So no matter where you're coming from politically, if it's important to you, then make sure that you're there for those people, because as you said, it's important to be cognizant of when the people that you like are the most vulnerable and when you need to stick by them and help protect them and help give them the resources they need in order to win the elections that they're targeting. A moment ago, you mentioned mentorship. That's obviously an area that you've been especially involved in, including being a mentor in organizations such as Chan Zuckerberg's Rare as One Project. Who have been some of your mentors and what did you learn from them and achieve because of them? Well, in my book and in a lot of speeches I give, I talk about probably the most impactful mentors in my life, which were Craig and Barbara Barrett. Barbara was most recently Secretary of the Air Force. She had been ambassador uh, to Finland before that. Uh, Craig was the CEO and chairman of the board of Intel. So those individuals I met when I was coming out of the White House, I was very young. When I started in the Reagan administration, I was 19. So I was 24 when I was leaving the White House. And uh, I went to work for Craig. He was the first person that I worked for in the private sector. And he taught me processes and systems. And that's that's why we have the book today, because it really shows how I take the uh, manufacturing processes that Craig taught me, and I integrate those with the roles uh, and purposes of diplomacy that I learned from people like Barbara. So it's a, it's a nice combination and a nice tribute to uh, what I learned many years ago. Uh, and so appreciate them teaching me how to be effective in business. You've noted how you and your mentors and you and your mentees have grown together. We have so many things coming at us from so many different directions these days that it's difficult to stay connected to people, even those who have been so important to us, let alone grow with them. How do you stay connected to your mentors and mentees? Well, remember, you don't have to talk to them every day. There are certain people in my life, like uh, uh, Admiral Evans, Marty Evans, Marsha Evans, who was head of Girl Scouts and Red Cross and a two-star admiral. Marty's one of those people that uh, we follow each other. We don't have to talk all the time. But when I get really, really stuck, I can call her. So I may not have talked to her for three years. But you know what? When I have a big problem, she jumps on the phone with me. She helps me out. And so I think that's what people don't realize is they get embarrassed. Well, I haven't talked to her for a long time. Can I give that person a call? Absolutely. If they've been involved with your life and they're somebody that's your go-to person, they know that you're 
your, they are your go-to person um, and you are their person. And so they want to see you be successful. So I would say don't hesitate in reaching out because I know that I always answer the emails I get from people who've worked for me in the past. We've been talking to Lisa Gable and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back with Lisa Gable, Counselor to Presidents, Governors, Fortune 500 CEOs, advocate for empowering women in business and politics, and builder of global initiatives. Lisa, let's talk about your new book, Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South, is being released on October 5th. Why did you choose that topic? Well, it's interesting. I was down the path with another topic, which will be my next book, was, was about mentorship and leadership. And in talking to uh, my publisher, 
around the March timeframe of 2020, he said, nah, let's let's stick with the turnaround idea. I think that's been a theme through your life. Let's try that out. And I never written anything about turnarounds, but what I recognized is that through my entire career in business, government, and philanthropy, what I have focused on is turning around organizations and taking them to the next level of performance. And so what I do is provide uh, an outline of four easy steps that people can take, which is visualize the future, break down the past, create a path from the past to the future, and execute with speed, agility, confidence, and heart. And I emphasize the heart piece, which is going to make this a slightly different business book because what I recognize is every action we take in a turnaround impacts people. And you need to at least internalize and understand and adapt how you, how you interact based on the impact to that individual of what turnaround you're involved with. For some people, it works out very well. For others, it don't. It doesn't. You, you can't. Uh, you have to keep moving forward. You have to make really hard and tough decisions, but you can actually be humane in the way that you handle it. Is there a single leading cause why organizations and individuals get into trouble and need a turnaround? Is it that they've made a simple bad decision in the first place, took them on the wrong door, wrong road, excuse me, or ignore a problem? You know, it's it's funny. It can happen a lot of different ways. One is they can just make an absolute wrong decision, or you could have a major moment like we've had during the pandemic where people haven't been able to adjust to the pivot that was required at that point in time. In other cases, they've just let things meander. And so one of the examples I give is sometimes I feel when I walk into a turnaround that it's like a house. Someone built the main house and then somebody else came in, they added a porch and then somebody else added a chimney. And then all of a sudden you had a swimming pool attached and you had another hallway that they put in and, oh, there's the garage, but it wasn't managed by a central architect. And so what I talk a lot about in the breaking down process is going back and looking at why did you start in the first place? Is it still applicable today? And how do you stop meandering to all these other other directions. I think the final piece is there is hubris, which is that you have people who operate with ego, who operate based on what they want to get out of the organization. And the reality is, is we're temporary stewards playing a long game in, to manage institutions. We are not the institution. It is not about us. It is about the uh, desire of the donors, the taxpayers, uh, the customers, whoever is footing that bill. Your number one goal is to do what they want, not to do what you want. And so that is one issue that I see a lot of in turnarounds. And is turnaround just for business and nonprofit executives at struggling organizations? No, it can be for anything. I mean, one of the things we talk about in the book is churches. You know, how many churches have you had where they've had some scandal or they've had a minister who wasn't able to, you know, keep people in the church and all of a sudden they didn't have enough money? We're talking about a book that is applicable for large scale activities, but it also is applicable for programs and projects. And so you might be brought into a project that you just got to turn around in three months and make work. What's interesting about the World's Fair is it was really an 18 month job. I basically had to raise all the money and get the thing back on its feet before the doors opened six months after I was sworn into office. And then it lasted for six months. So it wasn't a long period of time. It was a moment in time, but it had all the same attributes as some organizations that I've been involved with for a multi-year period that maybe had a longer, larger turnaround process. One of the approaches you strongly recommend is not to fix what you have, but to start from scratch and visualize a new and different future. When you're in a hole, it can be awfully hard to see a way out. I can see how starting from scratch can bring about a better end result, but does that approach make turnaround harder or easier? 
Uh, to some degree, it makes it easier. And, and you know, there are going to be things that you keep. But what I try to get people to do is break it all the way down to the ground. Just level the playing field. Start at the beginning. Again, visualize the future. What do you want it to look like? Because otherwise, you're tweaking your way there. And so, if you say, I want it to look like and have these attributes and these characteristics five years from now, the characteristics might be monetary. It might be market size. It could be the type of employee base that you recruit. Whatever the thing is that you're trying to accomplish, what you want to do is you want to mentally take it down to the ground. Like just start, if I was starting this organization today, how would I build it? If I wanted to reach those goals today, how would I design it? And then you do an auditing process and you essentially begin to audit everything that you are doing. And I'm a pile maker. I literally put things in piles on the floor because it's easier for me to visualize. And then I start combining things and I start ranking and rating things. And I use decision trees to decide what I keep and what goes. But to get clarity of mind, if it's so complex and you just feel like you're swirling and twirling, break it all down from the beginning and start from scratch. So to that point, what qualities does someone need to be or become an effective turnaround specialist? You need to be very process-oriented, very quantitative-oriented, and you need to focus on three things. You can only do a certain number of things well, and so you want to focus on job one, job two, job three. What are the top three things you have to do to achieve that objective? And if something doesn't fall in that category, but it's something you still need to do, then partner. You can't be all things to all people. You can't be a specialist in everything. You have to be able to recognize what you do really, really well, you as an individual and also you as an organization and an institution, and then think about, well, what do those other people do well? And you want to find partners who think the same way you do. You want to find partners who are process-oriented. There will be those occasions, and I talk about it in the book, where you really require a unique partnership because of perhaps an academic or medical expertise or manufacturing expertise or a particular segment of the market. But at that stage of the game, you need to clearly map out what you'll do and what they'll do. You clearly write a roadmap that you all agree to. You don't try to combine the cultures of your organizations. You are very, very focused on very specific aspects of the partnership that are important to both of you. If you don't do that, you can drive each other crazy. That's never a good thing. That's never a good thing. So often we pick up books because they look interesting, but we don't exactly know what we should expect to get from them. What should someone who reads your book expect to get from Turnaround if they follow the guidance? What you should expect to get is a clear path forward to serve you in moving your way out of a complex problem. Every problem seems overwhelming. And what I hope to do is give people the ability to see their way forward, very simply move steps forward, make decisions quickly. That's a key part of this. Sometimes it's hard for people to make a decision. And so what I do is I give you a decision tree so that you you and those you're working with can quickly make decisions. It's very visual for you how you're going to move through the process. If it works this way, you go right. If it works that way, you go left. Door number one, door number two, don't overthink it. But at the same time, I try to also give people the the emotional support through the process. So, and I'm, I'm very transparent in my book. I tell a lot of stories because I've seen some pretty crazy things, but I've also experienced some amazing support and partnerships and relationships that I would never have anticipated if I'd not left myself open to 
unusual ways of partnering, unusual ways of getting things done. And so what I hope is I give you clarity on the steps, decision process to follow so you can be very speedy in your execution and decision-making, but at the same time, look at novel ideas and look at something totally outside the box that actually is going to help you accelerate to your future more quickly. And I hope I put a smile on your face because I do, like I said, tell a lot of good stories. Well, I think Turnaround is a real winner and worthy of the New York Times bestseller list. And I'd like to see it make the list even before its official release in October. How can someone pre-order Turnaround so it hits the ground running? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I would love for you to go on Amazon.com and you can order the book there. It's also on Barnes & Noble. Uh, So the Barnes & Noble site, Books A Million, they're all selling the book. Uh, But Amazon.com, we would love for you to go and buy the book. Buy it now. If you pre-order it, it'll be in your hot little hands on October 5th or 6th or 7th. So we'll get it uh, moving towards that bestseller list. As I learned through this process, the goal is to sell a lot of books between uh, October 5th and October 10th, because that is what influences the list. So thank you. And then also, I do have a number of universities uh, that are uh, putting the uh, book into their syllabus for both graduate uh, business programs, as well as undergraduate business and diplomacy programs. Terrific. And we'll put it on our social media as well, so our listeners and viewers can get a link there too. So thank you for that. So one area where we could really use a turnaround these days is in the way our political system and governing process are working, or not working, unfortunately. Throughout your career, you've been a strong believer in and practitioner of bipartisanship, having worked in three Republican administrations and one Democratic administration. Why do you think we're so divided today? And why do so many people think bipartisanship and compromise are now just code words for weakness and betrayal of their own party? I think we get too caught up in the fact that it has to be exactly one way or the other way. And actually, you know, I also worked, even though I was an appointee, I worked very closely with the Obama administration on a project on behalf of the food and beverage industry. I have, I took Ronald Reagan's rule. He has the 80-20 rule um, and I turned it into the 60-40 rule. And what that means is that if you can agree with someone on 60% of the problem and the way in which to solve that problem, you document it, you agree on it, you say, this is where we're going to work together. And then you acknowledge that you're never going to agree on 40%. You're just not going to. There are certain lines you are not going to cross due to your fundamental beliefs that define your political persuasion. That's okay, because if you look at the world that way, when I get people to literally make two charts, what do you agree on? And we itemize it out. What don't you agree on? We just acknowledge respectfully, put it to the side, say we're not going to touch that thing, and you can still get the 60% done. And that's really a piece that I find stunning that people miss. They, they, when I take them through this process, we did it with a tail hook and what was going on with women in the military. Uh, I used the same system when I was negotiating a deal between the uh, 16 largest food and beverage companies in the United States and the world and uh, the public health uh, community. They had had a very acrimonious relationship, but we went through a process of finding a thing we could all target and work on together, and it literally changed the food supply. How do we get back to a place where Americans respect each other's political opinions and our elected officials quit calling each other names and start working together again? Is it just as simple as the 60-40 rule? And it's also educating yourself. Uh, you know, my, my brother-in-law has a site. I'll give a call out for John. It's called allsides.com. And what he does is he shows the same news story 
from three different perspectives every day. So he, he basically collates all the news stories of the day. He has an algorithm that does it. You go onto the site and it shows it from the left, right, and center, exact same story. And you educate yourself on how the story is different and the manner in which they're told. What do they emphasize? What data points do they give? Do they report just news or are they reporting opinion? And I'd like to see that uh, happen in our educational system, that we really get people to begin to analyze the different ways in which a story is presented, because it helps teach you that there is bias and there is a, a point of view, but at the same time, it enables you to define what is your own point of view, which then you can bring into the 60-40 rule. So, don't be closed to people. We Look, none of us want to see children starving. None of us want to see children uneducated. We want to see the United States in a strong place so that our children can grow and thrive. Okay, fine. So the way in which we manage towards that objective is what is where we differ. Some people believe in large government. Some people believe in small government. Somewhere in there are places where we actually do believe on the same objectives. And if you take a problem down to the most minute level, if you just keep peeling back the onion, peeling it back, peeling it back, you will find some critical decision points where actually you can agree, where you can make a huge change, a huge difference. And I, I really, I spend a lot of time focused on access to healthcare. And getting down to the fundamentals, in some cases, it's just the amount of transportation that somebody has to take to get to the doctor's office. How many buses do they take? How much time do they have to take off of work? Because uh, do they have a job that allows them to take off work? Or do they have an hourly wage job? And so if they have a disease like food allergies, how much time is that going to require them to take off work and to both get to the doctor's office and then the time they spend there? And when you talk about it from that very simplistic standpoint, all of a sudden you're getting people on both sides of the aisle going, oh, we can, we can work on this one together. That's a solvable problem. No, I've said in previous shows when we talk about the political spectrum and landscape, to your point, 60-40 or President Reagan, 80-20, you know, I view the country as really a big bell curve. You know, you've got the majority here in the middle, but then you've got these tails, which you know, are 5, 10, 20%, whatever that may, may be on either side. They're the ones with the loudest voice. They're the ones being the drum. They're the 24-7 news cycle. And it's my personal belief, not yours, not the show's, that you know, those tails are wagging the proverbial dog. And it's really preventing anything from getting done. You know, it's interesting. A, a friend of mine um, posted something, I think it was by Martin Luther during one of the pandemics. And it was a quote from something that he had written. I don't know if it's true or not, but if you read it, you're going, gosh, well, that could be everybody today. And, you know, if you, if you read the Bible, there was a lot of fighting going on there. It's not like they got along very well. It's human nature. And, and I know that we look at it as saying uh, it's the United States or it's where we're at today. We have a lot of social media that makes things far worse than they need to be. Uh, but the reality is humans are humans. They've been behaving. If I'm a, a big studier of history, they've been behaving the same way. There's always people who have, whether it's the Salem witch trials, it doesn't matter what it is. Humans have strong opinions and that creates discord and it creates our inability to get along and work together. But it's also the reason we're blessed with this democracy because we do have a lot of control over the destiny of our country and we do have the right to vote. And that's something that's precious to us. You know, in times of crisis or when terrible things happen, you know, historically, it seems that the country seems to become united uh, or certainly less confrontational. Obviously, the events of the last few weeks in Afghanistan have created, I don't know if crisis is the right word, but certainly a tragic event. Uh, my hope is that as we go through this and as we start to serve those returning service members and newly minted veterans, 
that we as a country can start becoming united and focusing on moving the ball forward instead of blaming each other. So I appreciate your insight on that. Well, it's a it's an interesting time in our history, and our hearts just go out to the moms and dads who lost um, their children during the past week. In the opening, we noted that you helped a number of Fortune 500 firms and others implement change strategies. Why is change so hard? And for the people in our audience, what's the best advice you have for them to identify the changes they should make in their lives and then make those changes stick? Because that's always the hardest part with your New Year's resolution. Well, it's hard for big companies to make changes and they they do thrive on their culture and they're successful because of their culture. Because I started at such a young age at Intel Corporation, there are a number of things from Intel that stick in my mind. But one is uh, we, we had this problem called not created here. And so people would resist something if it wasn't created at Intel. And it was made it difficult for people from the outside to come in and work at the company. And I, you know, I've seen that in other companies with whom I've worked. So it, it depends Sometimes in the institution, it's easier to bring in people from the outside to make change very, very quickly. It's one reason why consultants have jobs and they thrive, because they're not a threat to the person's position within the company. Um, So change management internally requires a commitment. It requires a quantitative process. It requires everyone being willing to step back for the better good of the organization um, and to recognize that, you know what, I'm going to help. I love this company. I love this institution. I'm going to help this institution become the best there is. And I'm going to recognize after that change, it may not be the place for me, but hey, I'm going to be proud of what I created. And then I'm going to recognize that I want something different out of life. I'm going to make a decision to go someplace else. And I am proud of the deliverables that I left behind. And that's one of my, my personal quotes is leave a deliverable at every step you take, because that demonstrates your impact on the world around you. You've had such a successful and storied career. You know, we have just a few minutes left here. What parting advice do you have for audience to feel more empowered, lead through adversity, and achieve their goals? Never give up. I mean, I, I always go back and read the, the Winston Churchill, it was my dad's favorite speech, never give up. When the world looks as dark as it possibly can be, and if you go back and you study history, you will see that people have gone through far more dreadful experiences and they just stuck with it. And sometimes, you know, there are different quotes, different stories about it's darkest before it turns light. I know in my own life, you know, I always visualize myself climbing up the hill and then I slide down the hill again and then climbing up the hill. And it's at that point where you're most exhausted and you're most weary and it's so dark where you are and you can't see your way out. And what you don't realize is the cloud is surrounding you. And if you go one foot further, you break out of the cloud and you're done. And so it gets harder right before it gets easier. And so having the ability to persevere, stick with it, be quantitative, stick with your goals, be willing to partner with other people. And that's the other thing. You don't have to do it alone. Partnerships, we have the ability to partner with people throughout the world. You don't have to do it alone. And by creating wonderful partnerships, you have this band of people that you can work with in a lot of different ways in the rest of your life. Lisa Gable has been our guest today. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Be sure to pick up her new book, Turn Around, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South, available through Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and other fine booksellers. And as always, thank you to our wonderful audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, 
Please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.